Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Artroversy and I am your host Brianna Ray, also known as BriIY. My dear friends, it has been quite a while since I've uploaded a podcast episode, but this topic is certainly one that I have many, many thoughts about. That is, of course, censorship. Something you'll learn about me throughout the exploration of this topic is that, particularly, I'm a little biased on this issue, so feel free to take my discussion with a grain of salt. Censorship is an issue that I am exceptionally passionate about, especially as an English teacher. I am flooded with decisions constantly on whether or not work should be considered appropriate for children, pulled from libraries, and so on. Arguably, it has become a significant part of my daily life, particularly in a time when it's already hard enough to get students excited about reading, and oftentimes being encouraged by parents to take some of the most powerful reads out of the hands of students for the reasons that they are powerful, and for students to actually think critically and consider more unique perspectives. But before I dive too much into that, let's start at the very beginning. What is censorship? The Oxford Dictionary defines censorship as the suppression or prohibition of any part of books, films, news, etc. that are considered obscene, politically unacceptable, or a threat to security. In short, this would be removing access to media. So this can be, per the definition, suppression in the forms of maybe hiding material so they can't be found, as we saw in the case of The Fountain from our last episode of Archiversy, or prohibition, as in the ban of a material from production or from consumption. Generally, the banning of various books can make relatively big news. Every year at the end of September, I personally celebrate Banned Books Week by promoting a wide variety of books which have been banned for a wide variety of reasons. Some of these books include classics like Bridge to Terabithia for use of swear words and witchcraft, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland for use of drugs and alcohol, Brave New World for offensive language, sexual content, and being anti-family, and books like Of Mice and Men or Huckleberry Finn for racism, and a personal favorite of mine, Slaughterhouse-Five for violence. All of these, of course, are among other reasons. With children's classics and novels that are revered as a part of the literary canon, and many of which represent some of the most well-known novelists in American history, being challenged so regularly, it's not hard to see how many modern classics are also coming under scrutiny for similar issues. Captain Underpants, for example, has been banned for encouraging disruptive behavior, and one book in particular for featuring a same-sex couple. Also, George by Alex Gino for mentioning dirty magazines and creating confusion with a transgender character. The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas was deemed anti-cop. 13 Reasons Why by Jay Asher was challenged for addressing teen suicide. And The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, in part due to its religious viewpoint, and a graphic novel this one summer for sexual references and certain illustrations. Now, I've read many of these books, so I have experienced many of these complaints through a first-hand lens. Books, much like movies, do have certain age ranges and levels that are associated with them to determine how appropriate it might be for a reader. Young adult novels in particular often feature topics leaning more heavily on coming-of-age experiences, such as sex and discovery of one's own identity. For many of us, as we grew up, these were relatable topics, and certainly some of these books I don't think I would have been ready for before a certain age. 
However, as an educator, I also know the importance of differentiation. I'm inclined to believe a parent when they voice that a text might be too complex or addresses issues that are a little too mature for their younger children. Generally speaking, I do agree that parents probably know what's best. If parents don't want their particular child to consume certain content, so be it. However, the idea that content might be too mature for all children and age groups and should be removed from availability is ludicrous. Beyond this, and the argument from those in favor of censorship that blows my mind is the idea that simply including controversial topics or visuals somehow means a novel or a piece of art might be promoting it. So let's take The Outsiders, for example. This is a classic read for middle school students, probably ranging in the ages of 12 to 15. In the novel, the characters are mentioned as cigarette smokers. The logic from censorship supporters is that by seeing or reading about characters participating in these activities, then the people consuming this content will then try to replicate those behaviors. I personally think that is a very narrow-minded approach to a very complex issue. Media, especially in the present society, is ever-changing. People are consumed by so much media so regularly and oftentimes so quickly that the idea of a singular book, movie, or piece of art could be the root of a change of behavior in a child is absurd. I think it also greatly undervalues the intelligence of our youth. Perhaps this takes me back to a previous point, which is that parents often know best for their particular kids. If you have a real monkey see, monkey do kid, and some turd in a kid's book is trying to steal a bag of chips from the local gas station, and now your kid is gonna go try that, okay, sure. Maybe don't plant the how-to manual in his lap, but I also think in these scenarios, parents and teachers rely on the understanding of right and wrong that we instill into our kids. Surely we don't believe that one book demonstrating a poor behavior is going to suddenly turn our children delinquent. I think that says more about the parenting than the book, honestly. And yet, maybe exposure and awareness of other topics can impact our kids, but it's definitely not in the way that they're imagining. The idea I've seen is that seeing same-sex couples and diverse gender identities is turning kids gay, when in reality, it's more like the kids realizing that they're gay. In households where students are only exposed to heteronormative stereotypes and situations, it's entirely possible that some adolescents have never even considered the idea that the reason they aren't interested in a boyfriend is because maybe they want a girlfriend instead. Exposure to these materials allows our young people to discover a part of themselves and recognize that they're not strange, alone, or weird, and finally begin to process this information early and adjust to becoming a well-rounded human being who is comfortable with who they are because they know who they really are. This phenomena is the very reason I wrote my novel, Fake It Till You Make It, which follows the story of a teen girl as she struggles to deal with concerns around her sexuality, until she discovers that she identifies as asexual. As I wrote the novel, I constantly thought of how different my teen years would have been if I had had access to a book like mine, and so many members of the asexual community have noted since reading my novel how similar their experiences were to mine as well. Access to these materials help struggling teens feel accepted and less alone when they're learning so much about themselves. Adolescence is hard enough without being stripped of access to the materials that might better help you understand yourself. That's right, Karen. The book didn't make your kid gay. They were gay the whole time. Surprise! Many authors have taken a stand against censorship of their novels. One of my favorites is Chris Crutcher. My first year of student teaching, actually, I was working through a contemporary literature unit with my 12th graders. In doing my research for the novel Whale Talk, I came across a now 11-year-old petition to remove Whale Talk from a school curriculum. Naturally, my interest was peaked, and I scrolled through the argument made by the woman, Debbie, insisting that the book was offensive, profane, and 
racist. She follows up in the comments on change.org, sharing that, and I quote, This is not censorship. I am simply asking that this book be removed from required reading. Chris Crutcher himself chose to comment on the petition in a relatively succinct and powerful statement. He wrote, You're wrong. This is censorship. It's not banning, but it's censorship. Look it up. That said, I'm the first person in the world to say you have a right to your opinion, but you're cherry-picking language and situations as you represent the story in your article. It's not forgivable. Not from me, because I'm used to this kind of thoughtless, knee-jerk fear, but to the people whom you're representing in the book. The racial language you forgot to mention is all perpetrated by racists. You can't expose true hate without using the language of hate. What you don't recognize is kids' ability to discern what's good for them and what isn't. I don't know a high school in America that won't give you a different book for your child if you object to a story. When you decide that language is offensive in a story, you're taking To Kill a Mockingbird, The Color Purple, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, Monster, Fallen Angels, to name just a few, out of required curriculum. When your Christian sensibilities get offended, you need to remember that the separation of church and state is fundamental to American democracy. I don't care if my book gets taken out of this particular high school. But your reasoning and your representation of this particular story is shameful. One of Crutcher's points also reminded me of this incredible campaign entitled Censorship Tells the Wrong Story put out by Reporters Without Borders. The group selects images of famous politicians and blurs out portions of the image to some pretty hilarious effects. For example, Vladimir Putin sitting in his chair and his hands in his lap. So the creator pixelated his hands, leaving only a vaguely flesh-colored series of boxes, which anyone with perhaps a dirtier mind might perceive to be Putin playing with himself, let's say. Obviously, that was not what the original picture portrayed, but by blurring out a piece of the image, suddenly there may be a less than savory idea of what occurred at that press conference, which then also leads to the spread of potentially dangerous misinformation. Crutcher stated that the author's cherry-picking of language is what bothered him most about the petition. Much like these images only show select portions which represent the image in a very manicured way. The truth of the matter is, manipulating media only spreads misinformation, like the presentation of the offensive quotes that the author of the petition pulled out of the book. How many parents read those quotes and immediately signed the petition without paying any attention to the context in which these quotes were presented? What if those parents actually would have found the book valuable? We'll never know. Something else I found interesting in this topic is the sheer hypocrisy of those in favor of censorship. The same people who condemn blatant racism from racists in books like Whale Talk seem to shriek in defiance of the idea of Dr. Seuss's books being discontinued for their portrayal of ethnic groups that were considered hurtful and wrong. Some were complaining about the banning of Dr. Seuss without understanding the true situation, and that it was in fact the express choice of Dr. Seuss Enterprises to discontinue the production of only six titles, which poorly represent members of various communities, citing they do not want to perpetrate stereotypes of white supremacy with anti-race imagery. Banning versus discontinuing are two very different situations, as one is a deliberate decision by the creator, or those acting on the behalf of the creator, to avoid perpetrating harmful ideals. I do have a theory as to why some people tend to kind of flip-flop on the issue, which I'm going to dive into in a little bit. Now, moving away from books, I'd like to discuss visual arts. Oftentimes we see situations censored for specific actions or images which may cause distress or 
most familiarly nudity. I've read up a lot on the idea of the creation, sale, and consumption of dangerous art or particularly violent or otherwise explicit actions or scenarios. Some people actually engage with this content as a form of trauma healing. It helps them process events that have occurred in their lifetime and helps them cope with struggles that may not be frequently addressed in easily accessible media. It's kind of like having a child draw pictures after their traumatic event when they struggle to speak or explain. Of course, even with this in mind, it's also a very real situation that most people do not want to engage in that kind of content. This brings me to another sort of layer of complexity to the issue of censorship, and that is, of course, triggers. We hear the phrase all the time that we have no idea what anyone else is going through. That's really true, which is why oftentimes creators of various media will provide prompt information before their materials, warning others of potentially distressing content. To speak for myself, I'm not a huge fan of gory content. While I love horror films, I don't particularly enjoy slashers. Disemboweling? Just not my thing, I guess. So if I go into an art exhibition and I see just disturbingly slasher-inspired sculptures, naturally I would attempt to get it out of there and cover it up to protect others from what I've just witnessed, right? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Just as I wouldn't run up to the projection room in a movie theater and turn off the latest iteration of Nightmare on Elm Street. Just because I don't enjoy that content doesn't mean that it's within my right to withhold it from others. Museums are for the public and everyone has different preferences. And I think the same goes for nudity. There's so much practicality in the use of nude models and form studies as a part of the artistic process, especially when we're looking at this in terms of realism. The understanding of anatomy is a complex art in and of itself. It takes time and practice to master. And this is how new and unreferenced art can be created for consumption. When we have images and poses in our mind, it's the understanding of that anatomy which allows us to create something totally new and previously unseen. In a different way, it almost feels as though taking this element out of museums or hiding them away is sort of preventing a clear process of how style and talent is developed. So often we only see the finished, most grand pieces of art made by the hands of super well-known painters and sculptors, but so many of these artists had to start somewhere. I often wonder how much more powerful museums would be for aspiring artists to see the greats unfinished or imperfect sketches or drafts and track the journey through an exhibition from where they might someday go with so much dedication and practice like the greats did. In that way, museums are sort of like social media. We only see the final, perfect, edited versions of the images. Censorship has so many consequences, which I've outlined here, but there is one more I want to bring up before closing this episode out. This is the Streisand effect. This is in relation to an event in which Barbara Streisand, a well-known celebrity, found a picture of her home had been taken and was accessible to the public. And in her efforts to get that image removed, so many people were so curious about the image that she inadvertently brought a ridiculous amount of attention and tons of publicity to the image that she so desperately wanted to keep private. Psychologically, people are way more likely to seek out information which they know is being kept from them. It's just like that episode of Spongebob with Patrick's secret box, or anytime someone's mom tells them to stay out of the closet during the holidays, you know your presents are in there. Now I know where they are, come on, think. In fact, this almost makes me wonder if the reason so many pro-censorship people were suddenly condemning and publicizing the alleged ban of Dr. Seuss books was to encourage people to read the books and take advantage of the Streisand effect to promote their personal ideals and values. Of course, that is a completely wild conspiracy I just thought up. There's no proof to support that, but I wouldn't be surprised if weaponized Streisand effects were a thing. With all that said, 
is censorship ever okay? Oftentimes, censorship is used to suppress hate speech. Perhaps we don't want our children exposed to racist characters and dealing with the complex issues revolving hatred directed at others for reasons that can't be controlled, like the color of your skin. These issues can be difficult to explain to young children, and some parents want to protect their children from that type of ugliness for as long as they can. And honestly, I understand the urge. The truth is, though, that art imitates life, and life is not all rainbows and butterflies. Life is hard and complicated, and sometimes it's difficult to be presented with that. Art and books are often escapes, and sometimes we don't want to face the harsh realities of life as we indulge in some escapism. My overarching theory to explain the driving force behind censorship is nostalgia. For so many, their childhoods were easy, or at least easier compared to living an adult life. The stresses of work and supporting dependents and the unfortunate stigma of attending therapy, which so many adults would benefit from, forces so many people to seek out opportunities to exert control. Parents might want to keep their kids from feeling the way that they feel as adults by shielding them from conversations that are uncomfortable or difficult. Or they simply attribute the political and social climate around them to the reason for their pleasant childhoods, which urges them to grasp at anything that reminds them of that time. While I don't necessarily think it is the right move, it certainly explains the behavior. Important discussions are often uncomfortable, and so many of us simply exhibit avoidant behavior when we're uncomfortable. It makes sense. I don't know if there's ever one right answer in the debate over censorship, but what I do know is that knowledge is powerful. Tools like trigger warnings, online reviews, and book teasers can help those who are uncomfortable with certain topics stay away from them without having to keep those topics or materials out of the hands of others. I wonder if that's a form of censorship itself, to include spoilers or other sets of information before the consumption of the material in the way that the author had meant for it to be consumed. Did the author even intend for it to be consumed? I don't know. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, consuming the materials that may be considered unfamiliar or uncomfortable to you may present you with the information you need to settle your discomfort and recognize the importance of these materials as a way to share perspective and develop our critical thinking skills so that we can determine what's good and bad for ourselves. Whatever you may believe, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Artroversy. I was very excited to get back on track writing this script and I think I have another episode I'm working on right now, which I have been looking forward to for quite a while. Feel free to subscribe if you like what you heard, and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or under the YouTube video. Both are Briey, that's B-R-I-E-I-Y. If you're a fan of video content, I do put out new videos every Sunday at noon Eastern Standard Time. Thanks a bunch, and I hope you have a killer weekend ahead. See ya!